Matthew 8, 23 through 27 this morning. A very familiar event in the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew 8, 23 through 27, Jesus calms a storm. We read the passage and then a short prayer. And when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Pray with me. Father, would you declare your word before your people? Would you enlighten our hearts to know your Son? Would you encourage us to stand in strength and confidence and not fear? Would you be merciful to us this morning? Take the simple words from a sinful man. Do a divine work within the hearts of those who hear. For Christ's sake, and for the good of your church, in Jesus' name, amen. So as you read through the Gospels, there's a tension, or at least when I read through the Gospels, there's a tension that I feel in trying to follow along with the disciples' understanding and faith in what's going on before them. It seems like sometimes they're as faithful as can be, and they're strong in what's going on. And then there's sometimes you think, why did you say that? It just seems as if, from my perspective, that their faith and their understanding seems to go up and down. We see, uh, like in our text this morning, what appears to be a lack of faith. But we know that from reading the last few verses before that, that they acted in faith to follow him. And so there again, we sort of see this up and down. And they... There are times when we just want to like knock on their heads and say, wait, I thought you understood who this guy was. And then there are some times where they know exactly who Jesus is. You've got Peter acknowledging Jesus as Christ, the Son of the living God. You have Peter acknowledging Jesus as the only one with the words of eternal life. 
But then you see a situation like this. Or you see the road to Emmaus where the disciples are confused by the identity of Jesus after his resurrection. Um, And so when we arrive at passages that show the disciples' lack of faith and understanding, I I get a little confused and frustrated by it. Um, Because I know and I understand my lack of understanding and faith in certain situations. And I want to see them and be like, guys, he's right there. What's going on? And, and so we have there are a couple of things I want you to keep in mind as we read through Matthew, as we think about this section, this, this text, as we think about Matthew and all the Gospels, as you read through them on your own. Um, a couple of things I want you to keep in your mind. Number one comes from Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So what does Isaiah have to do, saying that, have to do with anything about it? We must realize that God's unfolding plan of redemption to the point from Genesis to today to the to the New Jerusalem, he has ex- he's worked it out in design exactly how he wants it to work out. Exactly. Uh, the theological phrase might be he's ordained it to come to pass as he sees fit. There are moments in Scripture where you, where you will scratch your head and say, why is it happening this way? Why do why is it going about in this direction? And that's when we have to remember that God is fully intentional. There's no fluff, there's no extra, there's no side pieces. Every part has a purpose and place. So as we struggle with thinking about, well, why are the disciples going up and down in this way and that way? It's purposeful. It's purposeful. When we struggle with text, topics, teachings in the Bible, you must remember that his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours and be comforted by that. And number two, especially as we think about the disciples and their ups and downs, keep in the back of your mind that the disciples are following, listening, learning, and trusting Christ before Pentecost, before Acts 2, before the giving of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit. During the last week of Jesus' life and ministry, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And if you recall, Peter botches it all the way up until that point. Right? He's messing up, acting, as we're going to see, in fear, as a coward, up until the pouring out of the Spirit. So as the disciples follow Jesus while he lives, they follow him, yes, with the help of the Holy Spirit, but not in the new covenant, Spirit-indwelt capacity that comes after his ascension and on the day of Pentecost. So we keep that in mind as we look at and examine the disciples following Jesus. 
and with that in mind, let me give you two big ideas or intentions of this passage. Uh, which what, what I mean by that is if there are two big takeaways, if there are two things that are crucial, these are it. Number one, Jesus' identity is being revealed okay, in this text. And number two, we're being taught something about faith. So the identity of Jesus and of faith. Or we could say what you should get from this is knowing Christ, his identity, and trusting Christ, faith. All of this takes place so that even the apostles, the disciples, see the identity of Christ. And seeing and understanding the identity of Christ to inform their faith, And their trust in Him. And the intentions of this event are the same for you and I as it was for them. To inform our faith. To inform our faith. This is, that's the aim of your life. To know Christ and to trust Him. To know Christ and to trust Him. And so we'll keep those two things. Those aren't two points that we're going to walk through. But those are two things that are obvious and sort of we keep in the back of our mind as we look at this this account. So let's walk through the passage. Um, starting in verse 23, and it, there's something that I noticed that I thought was really help, was really helpful for me too, and I'll point them out as we go. Sort of guidepost. There are many points of contrast in this passage. The short little verses. I've got I think five points of contrast. And what I mean by that, if there are two things put together that show there's difference in them. Let me give you a couple for for example. You've got the different reactions to the storm. Jesus versus the disciples. You've got the contrast of fear versus faith. You've got the contrast of the sea at storm and then the sea after he uh, rebukes the winds and the waves. So the great storm and the great calm. And that's just three of five that you see in here. These contrasts will help us guide us through To show us more of Christ and how we ought to trust him. All right, verse 23 and 24. And when he got into the boat, because you know they were going across to the other side of the sea like Jesus had had ordered. His disciples followed him. So uh, they're they're going across the Sea of Galilee. Now, for you visual people, imagine Israel looking like this. This is a very bad illustration. But it looks like this, okay? And the 12 tribes of Israel are kind of scattered through there, right? Just if you you can see it in one of your maps, probably in the back of your Bible. The Sea of Galilee is at the north top of that that map, okay? And it's up there, and then the Dead Sea's down there, and then there the Jordan River flows actually from the mountains above the Sea of Galilee into the Sea of Galilee, which is a freshwater sea, comes down through the Jordan River and then into the Dead Sea, which is dead. It's salt. It's there's no life in it. Okay, so Jesus has been doing ministry around the Sea of Galilee. Most of the disciples are fishermen who live around the Sea of Galilee. It's a bustling community. There's towns and seaports everywhere around the Sea of Galilee. Most of the disciples understand the Sea of Galilee. I was doing some research, and and did you know Rembrandt painted a picture of this scene? This is just a little extra... And there was 14 on the boat, which 
there wasn't. There was 13, 12 disciples and Jesus. But Rembrandt usually puts himself into his paintings, so he's on the boat too. But then there's one, there's one leaning over, assuming being sick and vomiting, and the, the assumption is, is it's Judas. Number one, because Judas wasn't a fisherman, and number two, it's Judas. He's a coward and he gets sick, right? So that's just interesting. But it is, point being, the, fit, the, the disciples understood the waters of, of the Sea of Galilee. They understood the storms and the weather conditions that were possible. Okay? So they, they go to cross over the Sea of Galilee. Verse 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped, by the waves. So the, 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 the disciples understood. They knew the dangers of crossing. Um, that there's, there's a possibility of two types of storms coming across the Sea of Galilee. And it's a pretty fair consensus that uh, the type of storm that came across the Sea of Galilee in this situation was a storm from the east. Now, a storm from the west would look like a lot would look a lot like the storms you and I are familiar with. Clouds roll in, you know, you can see it from a from a, from a from a distance. You hear the thunder, you hear you see the lightning, the rain rolls in, yeah, the wind picks up. Most people, I would say the consensus is that it's not the type of storm that came up that day. But it was an eastward storm. A storm that came off the mountains. A storm that gave no sign. A storm that did not, might even have still been a, a cloudless day. It's a windstorm that comes in from the east, off the mountains, with no, with no um, sign or, uh, yeah, with no sign that there's anything going to take place. Unpredictable, okay? So the storm arrives. The boat is taking on water. ESV says it's swamped. All the most other translations say the waves are covering the boat. Uh, if you, you know anything about boats, water in the boat isn't a good thing. It's going to bring. You know what's going to happen after that. But how Matthew finishes verse 24, I, I absolutely love it, and it takes us to our first contrast. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Now to me, that's just Matthew saying, look at the difference of just the situation, the turmoil that is in the, not just in the area, but it's now in the boat. The waves are crashing over into the boat. And Jesus, he says, was sleep. So the first contrast that we have to understand is the outer condition versus the inner condition of Jesus. Now, if you've been coming on Sunday evenings, you've been seeing us in Psalm uh, 1, 2, 3, 4. We'll be in 5, Lord willing, this evening. And if you recall, David, the Psalms of David number 3 and number 4 mention sleep. In Psalm 3, I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there. Psalm 3, verse 5, David says, In the midst of trouble, if you recall, the whole nation of Israel has turned against David 
But because of the Lord as his shield, his glory, the lifter of his head, he says in verse 5, I lay down and sleep. What does that say? He's trusting in the Lord. He's at peace in the midst of turmoil. Uh, Psalm 4, he says, same situation. He's got men who are trying to turn his honor into shame. Seeking after him with vain words and lies. And he finishes Psalm 4 with, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, the Son of God is in perfect peace with his Lord, with his Father. And therefore, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of... What we see is a crazy situation. He sleeps in peace. Okay? That's our first our first our first contrast. And it sort of is interesting because he says in verse twenty of what we saw earlier a few weeks ago, foxes have holes and birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Wasn't really concerned about where he was gonna sleep, but we know that he would sleep in peace because he slept in unity and trusting his Father. Verse 25. And they, the disciples, went and woke him, saying, here's our second contrast, not just Jesus' inner condition towards the outer condition of the storm and the boat, but now we see the contrast between the disciples and Jesus himself. Peace versus panic timid versus trusting they say save us lord we are perishing and how do we know that they're fearful because jesus will then say in verse 26 why are you afraid no peace no calmness no sleeping for the disciples all right similar now similar to the way a parent and a child will sleep differently during a storm okay you go to bed and the, and the thunder starts to rumble. And the parent checks his phone. Ron Hurst says it's just going to be a little nothing. So you roll over. The parent goes back to sleep. The child hears the thunder. What happens? No sleep. Panic. No peace. What is the, what is the child lack? Okay. We've got a faith. But what... what what is the mm, you said the right answer I'm just trying to connect it here what is the basis for the lack of faith for the child finding rest no understanding no knowledge the parent has been informed by Ron Hurst that there is nothing to be fearful of and they can go to sleep the child sees the outward appearance, apart from not having any knowledge of the actual situation and cannot rest because they do not believe that they are safe. They think they will perish. This is the disciples versus Jesus. Peace versus panic. Timidness, timidness versus trusting. Why are you afraid, he asks. Now, again, what drives the fear of the disciples? 
Yes, lack of faith. We know it because he says it. Verse 26. Why are you afraid, O ye of little faith? Fear and faith are antithetical. They're polar opposites. They work opposite of one another. Here's your, here's your uh, equation. As faith increases, fear decreases. As faith decreases, fear increases. Imagine for you uh, video game players, a meter, uh, you know, like tells you your life. Um, the more life you have, the greener your meter is. The more, but the more things happen and you get hurt and injured, it, it comes red and red and red until all of a sudden you're dead and it's all red. Well, imagine a, a faith and fear meter like that. As you live and walk in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, your meter is green. But as your faith decreases, the red will start to fill in. So where faith fades, fear will fear, fill. As faith pushes in, fear will fade out. A lack of faith drives fear. What drives a lack of faith? I'm going to use a sharp word. Ignorance. And I use that sharp word to drive the point. Now, ignorance can come from just not knowing, but it can also come from forgetting. Ignorance can come from not knowing, but it can also come from forgetting. Again, go back to the child. The child does not know that they are safe, even though the storm rumbles. What are the disciples ignorant about? Now we jump forward to verse 27. It's revealed in that verse. And this is where you get frustrated with them. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? Why do they ask that question? What did he do? Well, we know what he did. He stands up. Or excuse me, he wakes up, he stands up, and he tells the winds and the sea to stop. And they, they see the next contrast. The great storm versus the great calm. I don't think it's any, I don't think it's uh, any accident that when Matthew wrote this, he wrote, Behold, there arose a great storm. And then he finishes, he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, what is the distinction there? A great storm versus, oh, and it calmed down, you know, the winds kind of died down, and the seas kind of slowed up a little bit, and eventually it was calm. No, no, he says, a great storm to a great calm, instant. You know what the water looks like when no one's been out on it, and it's not—it's just like glass. I imagine that that is the great calm, right? Not a breeze, not a ripple, but from turmoil to peace. And they see that, and they say, "What sort of man?" can do this that's a that's a question in ignorance right for this moment for whatever reason they misunderstand that the man that's in the boat 
Number one, let's get this right. They're right. He is a man. We'll come back to that in a minute. But number two, the man in the boat parted the Red Sea. Stopped the Jordan River from flowing. Calmed the seas when Jonah jumped in the water. You say, well, that was God. Yeah. So is this man. What sort of man is this? This is the the fourth or the fifth contrast. The contrast, the final contrast is Jesus in verse 24, sleeping. Versus Jesus in verse 26, rebuking creation. Man, God. Fully man, fully God. See, we got to understand, this is theological. I think I've made this point before. This doesn't make sense. When you think of quantities, of something being full, you, you have an amount, and it's finite, right? If it's full of sweet tea, and then you pour unsweet tea in it, some of the sweet tea is going to come out. And so now you have a mixture of... Partly sweet tea, partly unsweet tea. Half and half, as Sylvia orders it. But that's not what Jesus is. He's not this body that is filled as God and then filled as man. He is truly God and truly a man. Not 50-50. Because a 50% God is not God. 50% of man is not man. If you've got a half God and a half man, you don't got a sacrifice. You don't have a righteous sacrifice. The humanity and the deity of Jesus is absolutely necessary for the sake of your hope. And your salvation. Oh, we, we could spend weeks on that. But we have to understand that this event was a grace unto these disciples. This event was informing their ignorance. They marveled, right? That word marveled. Stunned. Shocked. When, do you, when are you stunned or shocked? You're stunned and shocked when something drastically... I'm trying to think of the right words here. When you witness something that informs your ignorance. I didn't know that he could do that. I was shocked. 
I never dreamed that that would happen. I didn't think that that was possible. And so you marvel. They marvel at Jesus because their ignorance was informed that this was not just a man, but this was a man and God. Now, Psalm 89 and 107 helps us with this a little bit. We read Psalm 89 earlier. Now, go and study these two passages because here's what I want you to understand. Both of these psalms, Psalm 89 verse 9, Psalm 107 verse 29, makes reference to Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is another, which is a word inserted for God's name. God's name, Yahweh, right? Yahweh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. O Lord God, O Yahweh of hosts, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are. O Yahweh, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When it when its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 107:29. They cried to the Lord Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Only Yahweh does that. What sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him? The answer is in the question, right? They, when they ask the question, they must thought, oh, Psalm 89, right? They were in the same boat with him who created all things for him and through him and by him. They were in the boat with I am. Now, those are the five contrasts that we see in the in this section. And there are just a couple things I want to us to think about as we close. Rewind and go back up to verse 25. And I want us to look at their phrase. And a lot of the commentators called this their prayer. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, they literally were... Fearful of dying, drowning. And so they they wake up Jesus and they say, save us, Lord. We are perishing. But I... This is... That's the story of mankind, is it not? Save us, Lord. We are perishing. Six simple words, but yet so profound and deep... Consider the garden. 
It's where the perishing began. If you, or for the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. From that day until now, man has been perishing, being eaten up, both physically and spiritually. We mentioned the, the passage last week. We are in a body of death. And so as we look at this passage and we see the, pro, or the, the, the prayer, the, the declaration, the cry, save us, Lord, we are perishing, I want us to just take a moment and understand that when we talk about salvation, or as it might be phrased, being saved or getting saved, we're, we're, we're talking about more than a singular moment or event in time. These guys needed to be saved right now. They were about to go overboard. But the salvation that mankind needs from perishing is not just a one-time moment and thing that takes care of your perishing. And perishing isn't just death or going to hell. But salvation is to be reborn. The old sinful self being put to death, buried with Christ in death, raised with Christ to walk in a newness of life, indwelled with the Spirit, being given a new heart, new affections, new desires. And it's absolutely necessary because the old self is perishing because of sin. And yes, there is that singular moment where the new birth takes place, but the new birth takes place, not just that you don't go to hell, but that you are a child of God forever. It continues for a lifetime. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer who I who go to hell. No, no, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So salvation is to be reborn. It's to be redeemed. It's to be brought out from under the bondage of the sin that puts the body to death, that is causing the body and the soul to perish. It is to be set free from that death, set free from sin through the purchase of Christ upon the cross, making that necessary payment for the debt that you owe to God, the debt that you could never repay. And if you tried, you would perish while working at it. Salvation is to be reborn, redeemed. It is to be reunited or reconciled to God. Our perishing, our sinfulness, and God's holiness. Let me back that up. Our sinfulness and God's holiness creates an impasse, a chasm between the two parties. Our sinfulness and God's holiness is the reason for our perishing. Created to enjoy God. Glorify God, but in our sin, rebelling as enemies of God in our own nature. But salvation comes to us through the mediatory work of Christ in taking our sin upon the cross and sharing His righteousness in our account. We are reconciled back to God, not just 
at death, but even in this life. Salvation is to be reborn, redeemed, and reunited. And so I have to ask you, do you see your salvation as this, oh, I'm on a boat, if I don't get help, I'm going to die. Or do you see your salvation do you see your salvation as being brought out under from underneath the decay and the bondage of sin that you are no longer heaping up for yourself the wrath of God on the day of judgment, that you have been pulled out from behind enemy lines, and that you are no longer doomed in your ignorance, but you've cried out, Save me, I am perishing. You must trust in Him, and He will deliver you, redeem you, and adopt you, and you will live. You know, it's a simple verse. One that we don't think we, we we probably take for granted. Whoever believes in him will not what? Perish. But have eternal life. So I gotta ask you this morning, are you perishing? Are the waves of God's wrath threatening to bring you under? Is sin invading you to the point that you are sinking? You must trust in Him. You must cry out to Him. Save me, Lord, I am perishing. Now finally, uh, why, why this... Why this rebuke from Jesus? Uh, it se- because it seems as if they did what I just told you you must do. They trusted in the Lord and cried out, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. But he rebukes them. Um even though they went to him for their help, he rebukes them. Now, what? Let's just let's just talk about this word fear for a second. Because his rebuke to them is, "Why are you afraid, O ye of little faith?" Now, you see a tornado. You going to be afraid? Yeah. I want you to understand, this text does not say, throw caution to the wind when the tornado siren goes off. Your faith in God is not determined by how long you can stand outside watching the tornado come in. That's actually stupidity. And you might be, in, you might be dad, a poor husband and wife. If you think that you can throw caution to the wind and stand out and watch the tornado come, this is not how long or your lack of fear and caution in a storm is not your measure of faith in Christ. All right, I want you to understand that. 
there, there are three types of fear that are spoken of. Three different Greek words, I believe, if I got it correct, that translated to fear in the New Testament. One equates to literally being frightened. Like when someone saw an angel, right? That was a that that brought terror and fright. That's not what Jesus speaks of here. There's another one where we where we see the word where we see it usually we talk about it in reverence and awe. Now, for for you men who stand and look and watch the storms come in, and you wise you wise ones who see that wall cloud and you think, hmm. I need to go seek shelter. That's fear. That's reverence and all for that wall cloud. That's a healthy fear. That is the fear that we must have of the Lord. That's not the that's not the word that he uses here. The word that Jesus uses here equates to one being a coward. Specifically, cowardice that comes from faithlessness. It wasn't that they called out for help. It was that they cried out as cowards. And you think, well, but they called out for help. Now imagine imagine a situation of danger and it needed you needed um, emergency help right away. 911, right? You can call for help for 911 in such a fearful way that you don't help at all. You're in such fear that you can't even communicate. There's no peace. There's no calm. And so they weren't it wasn't that they called out but it was that they called out as faithless cowards. Now, we have to understand two things. Number one, for a follower of Christ, for a Christian, we've not been given a spirit of fear. Similar word to the one used here. That fear is the fruit of unbelief. That fear is the sign of lack of trust. What really drove this home was the fact that in our scripture reading in Revelation chapter 21, we see that there are a group of people who will not be able to come into the New Jerusalem, but instead will find their portion in the lake of fire, which is the second death. Here's what you have to understand. The fear the disciples expressed in that boat as they cried out for help was a fear that God hates. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. 
But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus rebukes them because if they continued in their cowardice, they would find no place in him. And no different than the murderer, the sexually immoral, the idolater, those who live and continue in unrepentant sin, understand the fruit of cowardice I'm sorry, cowardice is the fruit of faithlessness. So we have to repent of our cowardice, our fear. In the same way we have to repent of our idolatry, our hatred. God hates the idolater. He will judge the murderer. And he will do the same to the cowardly. So, you may be thinking, okay, what about a moment of fearfulness? Will that send me to hell? Yeah? Apart from Christ, it will. Will a lie send you to hell? Yeah? Apart from Christ, it will. But Christian, you've been given a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That spirit, the spirit of God, cleanses us of all unrighteousness, even cowardice, even unbelief. He will save us. He will keep us. He has recreated us. He has redeemed us. He has reconciled us. And he will cleanse us. Of all of these things. For him who love him. Who trust in him. Who are called. By him. Let's pray. Father we thank you for. We thank you for the words that you've spoke to your disciples. We thank you for understanding. That they were weak and they needed a Savior. And so help us as we live our lives. We approach days where we might shrink back. God, as you've put for some of us uh, surprises in our life that we were not expecting. So hold us and keep us and preserve us that we might not be cowards in such a moment, but we would stand in faith 
that we will remember that the condition of our life, the surprise that has come around the corner, is no different from the wind and the seas, and that you are in control. Lord, as we see this storm, give us wisdom to cry out to you, but give us wisdom to stand strong and courageous and to trust you. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness, but remind us of the grace that you show of the grace that you pour out upon us, of the grace of showing us today your word and your faithfulness, and the grace that you will never let us go, that nothing can snatch us out of your hands, not even a great storm or that unexpected life event or even the sin that we fight within. That our victory is in Christ. And that as we have, as He is peace, remind us that He has given us His peace. No matter what the situation. All that we might glorify Him and exalt Him. All throughout our days. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's grab our black hymnals and turn to 388. He will hold us he will hold me fast. Let's stand together and sing proclaim to one another the grip that Christ has on us.